Welcome to the Build Business Acumen Podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Skula. Today, I would like to introduce you to Anna Lisansky. Anna is a marketing and communications leader, fluent in five languages, with stints in everything from a fast-scaling tech startup to large government departments to the group advising the Prime Minister's Office of Canada. Anna also recently helped launch a new globally focused federal agency with a focus on setting up its digital presence. So let's dig into this exciting episode. Well, hey, Anna, it's really nice to speak with you again. And I am really quite interested in hearing about visual communication today and a few of the other topics that we're going to discuss. Quite interested to hear where you start with visual communications. As with any type of communication, you really need to start with solid research and planning in terms of the product that you're trying to produce and develop. So what I mean by research and planning is you really need to know your audience, who is interpreting or looking at this piece. I always like to start with asking a lot of questions, getting in the person's head, if you are able to speak to people from your audience. Uh, if you are not able to kind of get a hold of someone from who's going to be viewing this product or this piece of visual communication, so if you think about it, maybe a presentation, for example, to use a point of reference. If you're not able to speak to someone and ask a lot of questions, then you can approximate and talk to someone who fits or is approximates your audience, right? Or Or knows your audience a lot better than you. So... That's very, very key, and it's a very key early step because you're going to really kind of consolidate that knowledge, use that knowledge to find ways to then ensure that your product, your visual product, um, can surprise them, can maybe throw in a bit of humor, but while all while staying in the right tone and style for what that person or that audience prefers or would kind of would resonate with them. So I always start off with that, and I think that that's, that's a key component that a lot of people miss. They don't involve their user or their audience in the design process. You can definitely start with that, and once you've got a solid understanding of your persona, of the, that, the persona of, of the people who are going to consume that product, that visual product, then you need to know, okay, what's your objective? What are you trying to do? And if I were to give it in a nutshell, like if I were to use, so then you would use this knowledge to find ways to surprise your audience, maybe throw in some humor, but all while sticking within a tone and style that's appropriate for the audience. And once you have all of this knowledge, you, you've communicated with someone who knows your audience or someone who is part of the audience, and you've gained all that knowledge, then you use that to create a persona. And that persona is basically, when you're thinking about your product, your visual product, you're designing it for them. You are, what you're going to choose next, and the visuals, and the, the typefaces, and, and everything else that's going to kind of comprise that final visual product you're going to be targeting them and you're going to keep them in mind. Um, and so now that you've done that research, that preliminary research, you need to know what is your objective? What is your objective? And if I could use just two words to 
really kind of encapsulate what the objective is of visual products. Typically, it's to, to persuade, you know, to sell something, a product or service or a brand or yourself or an idea. And the other thing, the other purpose of visual communications or, or visual elements in anything that you're doing is to be memorable. So you really are trying to get, get at least several pieces of whatever it is you're producing or several elements to stick in their head. Because being memorable and being sticky or sticking in someone's head um, is, is what is going to support that end goal of persuasion. Hopefully, hopefully you'll be memorable for all the right reasons if you, if you manage to get it, get it right. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example. So if I'm developing a um, presentation that will be presented to developers, for example, um, you know, they would expect that the visuals I would use in that presentation would be typically websites or apps, mobile apps or other visual layouts, right? So what I would do is actually throw that on its head. I would use physical products in the real world. For example, maybe I would show, instead of a web page, I would show a restaurant experience to, to illustrate what a good experience could look like. And then I would tie that in how that could be um, done as a walkthrough on, on a, on a web-based web visual product. After I do the kind of research and planning phase, then we get into creation. So this is where you're trying to get creative. And whether it's you creating your own PowerPoint presentation or it's you providing creative direction to, to a team member or whether it's you trying to communicate what your senior executive or CEO has, uh, wants to see in the final creative product, in the end, you still need to communicate that with visuals because visual people, designers are visual people typically. And so they need to be inspired, right? So whether you're, you're getting inspired or whether you're trying to inspire your designers in order for them to get what you're trying to achieve, I typically like to start this whole insp inspiration phase with somewhat of a mood board. And a mood board doesn't have to be really complex. You know, it doesn't have to be like this big board with, you know, printed things. You know, it could be done online. It could be done on Pinterest. It could be done on any kind of a variety of tools that you could use to develop a mood board. And essentially what you're doing is you're gathering a series of images or visuals that match the mood or the tone or the style that you're trying to get in the final visual product. As part of this inspiration stage, you could definitely take a look at trends, but I would be cautious with trends because, you know, trends are just their movements in design and very few things have never been done before. We we essentially try to use trends for inspiration, but we want the designer or the person creating the product to then make it their own rather than simply copying. Of course, trends can be used to ensure that your final product looks current, right? And looks like it's been well thought out and is going to resonate because it's what people are currently being kind of piqued by in the industry. And I always like to, in terms of trends, I'll always look out for 
okay, what are my brands? What are the products and services that I'm really impressed with their design? I'm really impressed with their advertising. I'm really, really impressed and pay attention to um, the videos or products they're producing. And I'll do a scan, right? I'll do a scan of those brands. And those brands are always in my head. And there's always, you know, like a good top five of these types of brands. And that's kind of what I would do at this stage is look around and see what are they doing? You know, what is... Um, you, you could use Google, you could use a variety of tools. You can, what are the top most viewed YouTube videos for that brand? What are the top most visited web pages for that brand? And there's lots of tools you can use to find that out. And then you kind of look at, okay, you know, some of these recent products, what are they using? What trends, what design trends and visual communication trends are they using? And, you know, thereby, that's why it's resonating so well, because they're obviously doing it right. Of course. So really, you're, you're, you're trying to tell a story then with your visual communication to hopefully not every, every sort of demographic at the same time. You're, you're trying to kind of, you know, really hone it down so that you get the right audience, the right message at the right time. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. You're definitely, this is why in the research phase we looked at the persona because you you might have maybe one or two personas that you're trying to hit with a product you you're not going to try to hit everybody or all possible personas you really want to hone in on kind of the top one top top two personas because otherwise your visual product is going to be too messy and too scattered and trying to talk to everyone and trying to incorporate every type of um, you know, visual or like the way I like to think about it, if you're communicating to a specific sector, well, there's tons of subsectors, right? And you, you don't want to include a visual from every single subsector. Um, you're going to, then you're going to run into the situation where your visual product is too busy. And um, when the person is looking at it, their eye just goes everywhere and is not, um, is not focused on the thing you're trying to communicate and persuade. Um, so to avoid those kinds of challenges, what I recommend is you, you really think about the background and the foreground and where does the eye, how does the eye move? Where does the eye on the product first start out and where does it look first? And then how does it move along the web page or around the PowerPoint slide or uh, whichever product you're developing? It, this, this technique really applies to pretty much any visual product. and in order to determine whether all of these things, if you're doing these things well, I highly recommend you pre-test your product, your visual product. So even if I personally am doing, let's say, a, a presentation at a conference, for example, I will, whatever I have developed and I've followed this process and I've definitely you know, thought about my personas, et cetera, I will still pre-test it with, um, people I trust, people whose opinions I trust, and who um, either ideally know the persona um, that I'm trying to target and would be able to give me some more insights or help me to maximize the impact. Because they will always, you will always have a second pair of eyes or even a third pair of eyes. They, they can definitely tell and notice a lot more things than you might because you've been kind of knee deep in this product and working on it for a long time and you start start to kind of not be able to see its flaws 
So I highly recommend at, in, as part of the creation and development phase to pre-test it. Um, it doesn't have to be expensive. It does not have to take a lot of time. It's just a step that's really important to kind of ensure you catch anything you might have missed. Definitely. I think it's really important to have different viewpoints as well with this sort of thing. You know, I mean, I, I have a various select handful of friends and business associates and you're completely correct with what you're saying. Like most things have been done before. So it's like, well, if, if a lot of things have been done already, just check out what's working and then take that forwards and, and sort of put your own stamp on it. I mean, we're not talking about taking someone's idea, but we're perhaps talking about taking inspiration, aren't we, from, from other campaigns that have been run. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And the key is um, to have a lot of uh, different viewpoints. Um, everybody has their own biases and their own viewpoints, their own opinions on color, on uh, typefaces or fonts they prefer. Um, you know, everybody's got their own biases, right? But um, if you're really trying to kind of disaster check your product, um, having a variety of people having a look at it, especially if it's a really important product, like a major ad campaign, or you know, you're presenting to a very large audience, and you only have like five minutes to really make an impact and tell your story, you, you definitely want to prepare with that, that kind of thing. You want to pre-test and you want to make sure that you kind of have really looked at, looked at it from all possible angles. Um, but what I, would, what I would caution is, in the end, you still kind of know what, based on experience, right? If you've done this type of thing before, based on experience, you, you would know like this element I know is going to do well with this audience, right? So with those kinds of things, I would say trust your gut. But with other kinds of things like, you know, if you're presenting to an audience that is of a different culture, for example, here's where pre-testing um, any of your visuals will be very, very important. That's, that's so important because you just don't know it, until you test that with people who are in that demographic, you could seriously, you might even, you might even have not done enough research. You might have the wrong word in there that could mean something completely awful to that audience as well. Right. They might just go mental, you know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, not just words, colors as well. Um, colors have different connotations and different meanings in different cultures. Um, you know, especially with Asia, you never know between one country or another, red could be good and another country could be completely seen yes. as a negative. Of course, right? of course. In Asia, like everywhere except for Cambodia, red is a great a prosperous color. But in Cambodia, that's what the Khmer Rouge uh, used to wear, red and white scarves, you know. So <laughs> having red and red in Cambodia is probably not the right thing to do. But I could be wrong. Because things change, you know, and, and I think that's why it's important as well to kind of keep up with what's going on in the present instead of just going back to the past and saying, well, that's what it was like then. I mean, I think having, having you know, really up-to-date information is, is super important as well, you know. I think it's really fascinating, like how, how like the colours in kind of Latin America are so much more vibrant than, than a lot of other places. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And having lived in Latin America, yes, I can definitely tell, you know, not just from, from in terms of clothing and what people wear and styles, but uh, in terms of what they kind of 
visually see as engaging, right? It would be different than, for example, if you're targeting a North American corporate client. Would you say that they're more sort of, uh, how do I put this, conservative in, in North America than they are in, in Latin America? I would say that it depends on the sector, right? If you're targeting the tech sector, you, you, can, you can definitely go, you can push the envelope, you can go a lot further, right? Um, the types of backgrounds that comprise the tech sector are so varied and um, the culture in the tech sector is so different, let's say, than, for example, the banking sector, right? Right. So it's really, I, I would say it's dependent on the sector, but if you were to compare, for example, you can even go ahead and try looking at, let's say, websites, right? Country websites will tell you a lot about what types of colors they consider to be positive or good or communicating good messages, right? So, for example, I go to Pro Mexico, which is promoting Mexico, and you would see that that website is very colorful, you know, it's got more than one bright color on it and things like that. And then you would go to compare it to, let's say, Select USA. And you would go in there and say, well, it's, it's gray and blue, right? So those kinds of comparisons, and again, this can be done with anything, not just in terms of how countries promote and market themselves, but you can, you can sample a set of companies that you're targeting in the country by looking at what they're doing visually. Well, thanks for sharing all those insights. That's, that's really, really interesting. So am I right in saying that you would, before you even think about the visual communication, you're doing your research and obviously you've already done your wording. So you know the kind of message that you want to get across, but you don't really know the sort of visuals you're going to use to get that message across. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. And then during the creation phase, that's when you would kind of come together with, you know, your mood board and all the visual options that you have. And, and then kind of you, once you, you move into the kind of finalizing the product and you've got a finished piece and you've hopefully tested it and hopefully pre-tested it sometimes at more than one stage. And then once you deliver your product or deliver your presentation or um, launch your ad, you always want to be uh, getting feedback. You have to have a good feedback loop, whether it be asking people how the presentation went, what they learned, and whether they got the message that you were trying to get across, or measuring um, all of your campaigns and conducting a lot of A-B testing to ensure that you are actually using the visual, kind of the visual that will do the best and that is performing the best right so that's actually very important i don't like to say a b testing because i mo most of the time i do like a b c d e testing right you you test like five variants find out what's the best ad that is resonating the best with your target audience for example in terms of advertising in terms of a presentation you're doing to a large group of people like i said there's ways afterwards to either email organizers or speak to some people afterwards but you always want to try to get that feedback loop so that you can improve um, and you kind of almost throw it back at them and be like okay so tell me what you you think I said right and then you 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 get the their wording of what they thought they learned and then you can evaluate your own presentation and whether you know, the visuals you had helped you tell the story or maybe you need to change it up. Maybe you need to adjust, right? 
Well, that's that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I've been doing a bit of research into sort of brand marketing, and that's kind of my my one of my passions. I'm really fascinated by that. And I did an episode the other day that you'll probably love to listen to. We I, I did a had a conversation with my friend Douglas, and he's one of my associates as well, actually. And he he worked with Krug Champagne and you know sort of various really prestige brands. You know, you've worked within government and. I just find the whole the whole marketing world is so fascinating. There's so much information that you can kind of just pick up. And what he sort of instilled in me is before you even try and brief the designer, it's it's all about the brand wording, you know, and just keeping that super simple so that people can actually understand what on earth you're talking about. And I think that's that's the that's the most interesting thing about about marketing really. And once once we sort of move forwards with with kind of the more technology focused research in terms of brand wording i think that's going to impact visual communications quite a lot as well and that's that's quite exciting the whole prospect of that over the next few years is it's quite exciting actually for me and i i would imagine for you as well actually you know Yes. So in addition to brands and products, we mentioned countries and marketing countries and how those all the countries use as part of their visual communication. Uh, but what I've also done is marketing people, right? Politicians right. Um, and or what they're actually doing, what they're uh, actually communicating to their constituents and what type of visuals uh, help to communicate that and almost the the tone and the style and the rhythm of the products uh, match basically the brand of that person right and and when they do match and they then they kind of the supporters and the base they basically have a better understanding and um, it will resonate better with them so that's always interesting when you you kind of are let's say um, not just selecting visuals to go with your product, but even selecting clips of a person, right? What Which parts of it matches kind of what they're typically trying to communicate, what they're typically trying to showcase. And then, of course, combining that with other elements, whether it be photography, you know, layered text and uh, music. Music and sound is also is also something that has an Im- impact on your overall product whether it could be a video or a podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I sort of chose a really uplifting kind of reggae tune. So I got my sister to do the voiceover for, for my podcast. And she's, she's American, but I got her to do an English accent. And, and that's been really quite, quite amazing. I sort of picked a, an English actress called Joanna Lumley. And I said, can you, can you get Joanna Lumley's voice? And she could have actually copied it completely, but she didn't. She didn't actually get it on point. And I thought, well, actually, I quite liked how she said it, so I just left it because it's a really positive kind of intro and a positive outro. And it's really important to set the mood, isn't it, and everything else. And it's fascinating how all these things just fit in together. I think it's just it's a huge topic, and I think some at some point we should certainly talk about it some more once you've once you've kind of been in your in your new job for a little bit longer well your current current job because you seem to just get promoted all the time every time I speak to you you've been promoted (laughs) (laughs) so so that leads us that leads us into our next topic which is career planning and I'd love to sort of 
sort of kick off, you know, 10, 10, 15 minutes about that um, before we before we sort of diversify into into the next uh, couple of topics. So where do you start with career planning? Where, do, where would you begin? Yes. So I would start really trying, especially early on in your career, to try to seek out jobs in your field, in the field that you're interested in, that you're passionate about, that you like and enjoy. Um, you know, for me, that's communications and marketing, but for someone else, it's something else. But in that field, try to get jobs and roles at the beginning where you can get a broad range of skill sets, where you can try and do a bit of everything within that field. And the reason I like to, to say that is because it will really teach you what you will really enjoy to do. Um, you know, we work many hours in the week and um, throughout the year, and it has to be something you're passionate about and it has to be something you will enjoy. So that kind of early on process, I highly recommend. And that's kind of how I did it, where I worked at a startup and I got to do basically, I, I wore all the marketing hats. I was the web developer. I was the graphic designer. I was the coder. I was the person who did the layouts, e-blasts, events, conferences, business development, lead generation, you know, CRM, everything. So that I could kind of learn the full spectrum of what every everything that a business needs to, you know, create a brand, create messaging, create uh, products that they then use to reach their audiences, and of course how all of that ties in with the business development angle. Um, you know, I remember having conference calls with. Uh, people across Canada or sales teams across Canada and our sales teams in California uh, and uh, listening to them a lot on a regular basis to understand what the business development side is thinking and feeling and working towards every day because marketing oftentimes is a supporter to that, right? Yeah. So this is just one illustration, but it could be done in any sector where you basically kind of get a broad range of skills. You decide where your strengths are and then where your passions are, and hopefully there's a match there. Uh, if there isn't a match, of course, you can develop your skills and get more training, more uh, learning or education, or um, you know perhaps ask to job shadow someone. If you don't have the skills in something, but you really, really, oh my gosh, I really am passionate about that and I really enjoy this part of, of the field, right? So I would definitely encourage to start with that. And then once you know kind of, and, and, that, and that's really important because when you first start out in your career, you actually don't know what you like. You don't know, you're not sure. Um, you kind of know that you like this field, but the you find out later that it's a lot broader than you expected. And um, basically what you do, once you've discovered kind of that, that area that you really want to hone in on, um, then you try to really ensure that you're trying to learn as much as possible about that area. Um, and as part of that, you want to be really keeping up your skills and improving your skills all the time, meaning learning all the time, learning something new every day, and of course, um, keeping up your skills. And what I like to think with that is rel relentless innovation. Always be learning something new, right? Just like companies who are not relentlessly innovating, same thing with you and your career. If you're not learning constantly, um, you're going to be stuck. You're going to find um, people later on in your career 
coming into um, your organizations or your teams that know more than you. And if that's happening, it means that you're not keeping up your skills, right? And things are evolving all the time and, um, and changing. And this applies to many, many sectors, not just the tech sector, which was the example I used earlier, but um, in, in many sectors, there's a lot of impact in terms of innovation and the evolution that is kind of being propelled by, you know, the internet and AI and all of these uh, emerging technologies. And now that you've uncovered kind of what your passion is and, and the, the area of your field that you really want to move forward on and progress in your career, you need to get yourself some mentors. You need to uh, find a person who is in a role that you aspire to be in. And you can find these people. Now with LinkedIn, you can do some research, you know, compose a really good intro. And, you know, it might not get a response from everyone, but you will get a response from someone. There's a lot of people who enjoy mentoring. And in fact, I also mentor people uh, myself because I always want to give back. Like if I've had good mentors throughout my career, I want to also help other folks who are starting out early in their career. So having mentors is very important. But in addition to that, I would also encourage you to have trusted advisors. And the difference between mentors and trusted advisors is that trusted advisors are going to be people who know you very, very well. And typically you would want them to be people from diverse backgrounds, but who know you very well. So, for example, I have an advisor who is very into politics, like way beyond me, like knows the results of all elections, uh, follows Canadian and U.S. politics and global and geopolitics to some extent, um, but kind of a lot further kind of than I would go. Um, and then I have someone who is from a different sector and a different country, but who is, has been a long-term, long-time good friend of mine and knows me very well and we still kind of stay in touch. And I have another advisor who is actually in the same field as me. So that's also important. You want to have advisors in the same field that you're working in as well, because they can kind of be your person you can bounce back ideas with, you can share best practices with, you can find out about career progression opportunities from, you can, um, you can get referrals from, etc. So it's important to not just have kind of a mentor in a senior position from a person from the perspective of a role you want to aspire to but also to have mentors kind of that are more close advisors that you go to when you're about to make a career decision and you bounce those ideas back back up back and forth off and then you kind of gather all of your advisors opinions and you think about what you want to do and what I like to do is I definitely do a pro con list right I'm very all about numbers and I'm about um, evaluating things a bit more from like a, from an object, a more objective point of view or as objective as possible. Obviously to some extent career decisions can be emotional, but most of the time I like to keep them kind of pragmatic and really kind of analyze what is, what, am, what do I have here? What can I gain in the new role? Am I going to be learning something new in the new role? And that's, that's really kind of my biggest question. Will I be learning something new? Will I be challenging myself, right? And sometimes things that go into the pro, pro list could be things like, well, the senior leadership in this new place or this new role is 
people who I am really inspired by, right? So that could be another element. But definitely have a mentor, have trusted advisors, make sure that they are from diverse backgrounds, but that they also know you very well and, um, and do a pro-con list um, before you make any kind of career decisions and career moves. And be able to do that and to get those mentors, of course, you need to be networking. So attending networking events, both local and international, attending industry sector events, this will help you kind of build your contacts, build your network of people who could either one day become your mentors or refer you to a job or recommend an opportunity that you could apply for. So it's very, very important to um, network and to build your contacts. So I use LinkedIn heavily and I definitely, anytime I go to an event or networking activity, I will connect with people I've, I've met with and I will send a very personalized note to kind of remind them how we met. Occasionally, depending on the person, depending on you know, how associated they are with my field or how much I think that they know and that I could learn from them, I would go ahead and actually follow up a little bit more regularly to kind of maintain that relationship, right? I would potentially go for coffee or for lunch with them. I would continue the conversation and see what else I could learn from that person. Does that make sense? So that's all very interesting, Anna. I completely agree with you uh, with all of that, actually. I think it's, it's very important to realize as well that, you know, you're not going to be in your current job forever, probably. The chances are, I mean, they were saying that people in their 20s, by the time they reach sort of 30, have had like nine different career changes. That just amazed me. I was like, wow. So it's, it's kind of like all these skills, all these business skills that you learn and, and, and this acumen you build up and these connections just create so much so much learning and so much fun i think it, it it makes your career a lot more rewarding as well most certainly yes and what i found most handy is the networking part like i've had people offer me jobs amazing jobs from a networking i went event i went to four years ago where i met this person once and spoke to them for maybe two minutes and just in that short time frame, I guess I was able to land an impression. And so later on, when they were thinking of someone who is, you know, strong in marketing or strong in that field, or I don't even recall what we talked about, honestly, but it was probably about marketing. You know, four years later, they refer me to someone when um, that person is looking for someone strong in that field. So I absolutely do not discount and it's tough for some people because I'm a very type A personality who loves meeting new people, who loves walking up to strangers and talking to whoever, not really somebody who's afraid to do that. Uh, but again, I'm an extrovert. It could be really tough for introverts to do this, this really crucial key step. And if they're not doing the networking part, that could be set holding them back. So that's one thing I wanted to really kind of mention that you kind of got to develop it. So even if you're an introvert, you've got to develop it. You got to work at it, the networking part. And of course, you know, let's say you're deciding to move on and you've accepted that new job. Or hopefully it's a promotion. Um, you want to really make sure that whatever job you're leaving, you leave that job well. So uh, in some jobs, I have helped find my replacement in some jobs, I have given significantly more notice than the minimum. 
to ensure that if there's a really kind of easy and smooth transition for the other the previous employer it's really important to not burn any bridges and to really keep in mind that anybody you've worked with um, even if they're not your one of the people on your references list any one of them could be called at any time and ask and people can ask about you right so you really want to make sure you leave everything in a good place and of course in this role that you've had or even any future role you're moving on to it's really important to keep track of all of your wins anything that you do write it down if it's a, it's a big achievement a big success write it down it will help you in your career planning and it will help you in your um, maintaining and updating your CV and uh, and then make sure that you promote your wins because if you don't kind of merchandise or promote your wins um, nobody will know about them or not enough people will know about them and then you won't uh, hear about these promotional opportunities of course while you do that I also highly emphasize to ensure that you give credit where whether it be your teams or colleagues or other managers or other leaders that have helped you to always give credit where it's where it's due because and sometimes it's actually good to even over give credit because all of that kind of stays in people's heads and it stays as kind of as a, an opinion or reminder of of yourself so you always want to leave that that good and positive impression and not the impression of like you just take credit for everything right yeah i agree i mean we, we see all these people winning the grammys and stuff don't we and <laughs> and uh you know i think i think that when they do sort of give credit to their team and everything it just adds a whole new feeling to what they're saying it gives a warm feeling instead of a kind of you know almost egotistical thing i mean but you still it's a difficult thing to promote yourself uh, in front of people without being egotistical you know being canadian i mean you you're in canada right are you canadian i, I actually you are aren't you well, I'm Canadian. Yes, I am Canadian now, but I uh, moved to Canada when I was eight years old. Right. Um, and prior to that, I lived in Peru for a bit. Oh. To, yeah, but I was actually born in Russia. Ah, I love Peru. It's one of my favorite places. I spent uh, nearly six weeks there traveling when I was in my 20s. It's a great place. But my point I was trying to get to was I think cultures actually can hold people back. So, for example, you know, I mean, I live in England, right? So, you being in Canada, you are a little softer than the Americans. So, what I mean by that is a lot of Americans, they will shout about their, their achievements, yeah? You, you are more British, I think, in fact, than actually American in, in the way that I look at the Canadian kind of culture, and the way that you promote yourselves is a lot more, it's a lot more, on the whole, it's a lot more British than it is American. I mean that in the nicest possible way. I'm not saying that the Americans are doing anything wrong, but what I'm saying is, is that us as British people, I mean, there will be a lot of British people listening to this because uh, it's, it will be in front of, you know, people within lots of organisations within the UK and worldwide but I think we need to be more American in, in, in our promotion and our self-promotion, but not to the detriment of our relationships. And there's a very fine line between being yourself and actually stepping out and over-promoting who you are 
so that people kind of look up to you and that's not that's not what I'm what we're talking about is it yeah and this goes hand in hand with the whole giving giving credit thing as well uh, but also I, what I often struggle with is should I promote just the results and just you know kind of make sure the results are uh, the organization is made aware of them versus just kind of promoting myself right so I've always stuck to promoting the results more um, and not promoting myself and uh, as much um, and that's worked for me but I don't know it depends on the culture of the organization as well you really need to hone in and understand your organization's culture uh, because you need to know whether just promoting the results is going to work for you has it worked for others or if that is not the type of place where that's going to work, where you have to actually promote yourself constantly, you have to get FaceTime with senior leaders constantly, maybe do some after work activities, go for a, a five to seven type of uh, drinks after work or things like that, then that those are the kinds of things you will have to do in order to kind of be able to kind of surface in terms of especially in larger organizations, as someone who is worthy of or merits a promotion or merits a career progress in that sense, right? Right. So you have to right. kind of match, you have to match what you're going to do to the culture of the organization. And if that doesn't sit well with you, and if you're not comfortable with that, then perhaps consider a lateral move to another organization where the culture fits more, uh, fits better with, the way that you like to work because I mean it's really hard to change people it's really really hard but it's not that hard to these days to change jobs and to change organizations not as as hard it may as it may have been 10 10 20 years ago well I think people are used to moving a lot aren't they a lot more these days but you know in terms of in terms of your career planning I think taking the time to think about your personal brand actually everyone has one and what you look like from the outside to the outside world is really really important and a lot of people actually miss the fact that everything that they do on social media can be seen by someone especially if it's a public post and some people will avoid social media altogether because they don't want to show off what they do in their spare time but I think actually there needs to be a sort of healthy balance from my point of view as to how that is managed and what is public and what is not public and how we actually engage with other people online as well as offline is really really important and you know and that goes back to getting your brand wording right i mean i've got i've got all sorts of presentations i'll drop a link in the in the show notes if anyone wants to work on work on their brand wording and their image I think it's important to think about, you know, the kind of firstly, the words you're using to talk about yourself, which become part of your CV or your resume if you're across the pond. And those words become your personal statement, the, the credibility and authority and, and why you're different and or better than anyone else really needs to come through so that people can actually understand why they should be talking with you instead of someone else. And, and then you need to think about the pictures that you're sharing, the kind of headshots that you're getting, the kind of social out, you know, out, outings that you're taking and, and where you are. And you know, avoid taking pictures and posting them when you've been drinking alcohol is a, is a piece of advice that, I've, that I follow, really. And 
you know, I think it's super, super important to just be aware, just, just step back from yourself and imagine that you're someone who doesn't know you, who might even hire you, want to recommend you and then think, well, would you recommend you to someone else is kind of where I would end. <laughs> what do you think? Yes, absolutely. And I've definitely done that throughout my career as well. I mean, I change my LinkedIn description of what I do every time what I do changes, sometimes multiple times within the same role, within the same organization, because, you know, roles can evolve. So I'm really looking at that and looking at it from um, an outsider's perspective. And then I ask myself, if I read this and I didn't know me at all, um, would I be able to tell exactly the value that I'm bringing to the organization, as well as get a little bit of personality in there, just a tiny bit, because I find um, descriptions that sound extremely dry, yeah. well, that's what I get from that. I get that that person is also extremely dry, and then that might not fit well with uh, my organization in terms of fit. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think that was the first place I saw you was on LinkedIn, actually. And that's why we connected. And that was probably, I would say, about five years ago, four years ago, you know, and, and I read your profile and just thought you were someone that I wanted to speak with and, and, and learn more about. And I think that's the most important thing, isn't it? It's making it, it's making your profile friendly enough so someone might want to approach you but not over friendly and then not over arrogant as well it's a, it's a it's a very very difficult thing to get right but i think you certainly have done it and it's been great to watch your career it's been impressive you know to see what you've done in such a short space of time really and um yeah i think it's fantastic so on to on to the next on to the next topic I think we should we should talk about organ, organization recruitment. So when when you're recruiting what what where do you start? I start with the role. What I what I what do I need and I start with kind of a an unbiased view of it. Like what are the skills that I need in my team? What what am I missing and what are the kind of the sets of assets and skills that the person needs to have in order to be able to do the best job they possibly can in that role. In my field, uh, the types of jobs I hire for are writers, I hire graphic designers, video producers, I also hire social media specialists, and I also hire events people. So in, the, in these types of roles, there's a certain kind of skill set. Uh, typically in communications and marketing, you need some, one basic skill set that is really, really important that everyone must have, which is writing. The ability to write really, really well, persuasively, and with really strong um, grammar and punctuation. So whatever industry or sector you're in and you're hiring for, kind of try to discover what that baseline um, skill set really is. Um, you know, for, for different types of role that are more analytical, you would have a, the baseline skill set that, that everyone must have will be more mathematical and statistical in nature, right? Hmm. But I find what those baseline skill sets are, and then I build out the job description. The job description is really, really important. It needs to be impactful. It needs to clearly show what the person is kind of going to be doing people don't like uncertainty 
People don't want to work for dull organizations. So you, when you read your job description, does it sound standard and regular and dull? Or does it sound interesting, dynamic, and exciting? So what I would do as well, kind of with everything else that I do, is I would show it to lots of people and have them look at it and read it, even people who are kind of not looking for that type of role, but just to get an impression. What's the impression do you, you get of the organization and of the role? Or I would ask something like, what do you think this person's going to do when they get here? So if that is not clear or the answers I'm getting are not clear, then I would have to go back to the drawing board and adjust the job description. That's, that's actually quite important. And as part of that process, you know, you're going to be, end up putting your job description on your website most likely or on other staffing and hiring websites or on LinkedIn, for example. So you really need to ensure that you think about the process of the people who are going to look at it and what, what else are they going to do? They're probably going to Google you. They're probably going to Google the website. They're probably going to look at other people who work at the organization and the description, their descriptions on LinkedIn. Um, they're, um, if they're going to be more in-depth with their research, they're probably going to see if there's any news releases or articles or any other organizations writing about your company, what they're saying. You know, they might go and look at Glassdoor to see what uh, some feedback is from people. So they're going to be doing a lot of internet research. So you have to ensure this. If you want to attract the top, the best talent, that everything that person sees about your organization is top-notch. From your website about, about us page to the job description to your description, the hiring manager's description on LinkedIn, to some of the key top people uh, in your organization, what, what their profiles look like on LinkedIn. And this is very key, and this is why in every organization where I'm in this type of role, like a digital role, I ensure that I give senior and C-suite level folks training on LinkedIn and why their profiles are important, why it's important that they are filled out, because it's not just for themselves, for them to be exposed to new job opportunities. It's actually a branding element of their organization. And how an organization brands itself impacts its ability to hire top talent and in the end impacts the organization's potential to succeed. So that is very, very key, and I provide that kind of training um, internally to staff at all levels and to C-suite as well, and I've done so in my current organization, and it was very well received. So when I, when I moved, I moved recently, probably, I don't know, six months ago or something, and I, I, uh, I received an, in, an in-mail from someone who's a local recruitment agency. And this young man sent me a message and, it, and, it, and he pointed to a job in a local marketing agency. And, and he said, well, this agency, I think, you know, there's a role that would be perfect for you in this agency. And I'd like, I'd like to put you forward for the role. So I, so I asked him a little bit more about it and I, and I took a look at it. And, and then the first thing that I did is I went to LinkedIn and I looked at the managing director of the business. That was the first thing because I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm like top, top level, right? But if I was to work in a business, I, I, would, I would work directly with the managing director or the marketing manager or, the, you know, quite high up. So when I looked at this guy's profile, I was just, I was like, I was just, my mouth was open because 
in fact, he had, he, he literally, you could see his career history really quite irrelevant to, to the business. He was clearly someone that had been put in as a managing director, but someone else was kind of behind him. And you could, you could see that and tell that just from looking at the size of the business. I mean, it was quite a small business, probably 110 staff. So, you know, fairly small enterprise in, in the scheme of things. And I just sort of looked at him and I was like, I couldn't work there just because I looked at him. I, I, and I sent, the, um, I sent the hiring manager a message saying, well, I, you know, I'd consider working maybe two days a week if you've got a project you need some help with. And I never received a response, which made me laugh even more. So it, it shows you that, that, in fact, the first thing that gives your company a bad reputation is your, your top people having a bad profile. Second thing is your companies who are hiring for you they need to have some manners. Like this is rife in the recruitment business. And if you are using recruitment agencies, then you need to you need to tell them that everybody that speaks to them, right, about your business needs a polite response saying why, you know, they didn't contact you or why they didn't get the job or what, you know. I've been on a lot of interviews over the years, uh, you know, probably not for a little while, but I think that manners maketh the man is something that they say over here. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And that any people that the organization hires to, um, you know, do headhunting or recruitment are essentially kind of representing the organization to some extent, and they're leaving an impression. And so you want to ensure that that impression is a good one, uh, whether or not uh, that person gets hired, because it's still a touch point with, uh, you know, the community, the industry, people in the industry. So I completely agree with you, Nat. And I also do the same. I look at the organization and I look at at least some of the top level people on LinkedIn and see what they have. And sometimes, you know, if, if the organization um, seems to not have a lot of photos in the people's profiles or very empty profiles, that's also an indicator to me um, in terms of the openness of the culture and things like that. I mean, I know I'm inferring here, but especially for me and for my field that is important for other types of fields might be a little bit less important and of course if you're looking internationally it would be less important in countries where linkedin or sites like linkedin are less used in that way but if that happens then i rely on the website what does the website look like and how much effort have they put in in talking about the organization and what its vision is and communicating its culture to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you something funny. What I did, I actually spoke to someone else at the business. So I looked up someone else on LinkedIn who worked there and it turned out that I met the guy for coffee and we, we sat down and had a conversation. <laughs> it was really funny. So I basically said, you know, I've been approached by a recruitment agent about this business and I just wanted to like meet up with you for a coffee and have a conversation. And he said, oh, that's brilliant. I'd love to talk with you. So I sat down with him and it was, it was quite amusing. He, he said to me that he'd, that he'd actually he owned 10% of the company. And it was really quite funny. He, he basically had, had built some sort of a big tech business a few years back. And he'd sold it for like a huge amount of money, like eight figures or something. He said, you don't want to work there. You wouldn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's so, my next. Yeah, that rolls into my next tip, which is to network. Um, And I don't just mean network from in terms of events in your industry, but also try to get to know people in the organization if possible, 
or communicate with them. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of when you're recruiting, you want to have lots of points of contact. So you want, you want points of contact in your sector and in your industry, because then you might be able to kind of accumulate or get some CVs that are referred to you. But also, of course, at industry events, meeting a lot of people, they could either be potential hires in the future, or they could be sources of referrals. And I find and some of the best people I've hired have been referrals. So I do tend to rely on that significantly because typically people who know me know the type of organization I'm in and the type of work I do. They know the other person well, then they can find a really good match. So I find networking definitely really helps and keeping kind of keeping in touch with other people you've worked with in the past who you felt were very promising and very strong in certain areas. I certainly try to do that. I go for coffee with uh, former members of my teams from almost every organization that I've worked in where I've been a manager or a senior leader. I try to stay in touch, just kind of see where they're at, where they're going with their careers. Because, you know, you could run into them in the future. You could potentially be hiring for this type of role again. And hopefully if you were a solid manager or solid leader, uh, they would want to work with you again. If that doesn't work out, if you're, you know, your job hiring process, your job description, your networking, all your contacts is still not yielding kind of the best possible recruits, you may need to use a headhunter for difficult to fill roles. And I've certainly seen that in organizations. Um, and I've personally been headhunted, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, of course. <laughs> Why but, wouldn't uh, you? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, I would say my last, uh, my last uh, three roles, I was headhunted. <laughs> asked to apply to a position but essentially they wanted to hire me and um, in some cases I still had to like apply and stuff but you know it was uh, it was a very interesting and um, and I would say that also I've had a lot of cases where um, some of my senior leaders uh, directors and uh, above you know they would move on to different organizations and then they would kind of be like oh you know uh, why don't you come and join me here and work on kind of this or that? So that's another thing too is, um, you know, keeping in touch, not really limit yourself. Keep in touch with people who you've worked with before at, at your level, uh, people who have worked for you, and also senior uh, leaders and senior leadership wherever possible. Um, that would be my key um, recommendation because you never know where a good recruit recommendation could come from when you're kind of really in a pinch, you're really in a bind and you need to fill a role quickly. Um, you can use kind of those sources. So yeah, a job description, strong uh, networking, uh, headhunting. And the next kind of thing that's important now that you've gotten your kind of list of potential recruits or you've, you've ran your job posting for a certain amount of time and now you get to the screening phase. And in the screening phase, it's really important that typically I, I haven't done the initial screening phases lately just because I've worked at large organizations. So, you know, large organizations typically get, you know, hundreds of applicants. So to do that phase myself, it would be very time consuming. So typically you have another person, let's say, in your HR department doing the screening. And it's really important that you communicate with that person, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, ideally face-to-face -face meeting, and communicate the role, 
uh, to the person to ensure that they really understand what you're looking for. So that through that initial screening, you, you're getting kind of the best of the best or the, the cream of the crop, but that they understand what that means to you. Things to look out for. So key, key skills that you're like, if you see this, that person is probably a good person to move on to the next stage for interviews. And um, that's really kind of important in terms of uh, identifying those things. And I like to call them, I guess, assets or extra qualifications or extra things that you're seeing on people's applications that um, really tell a story about the person. And um, that can include things like awards, volunteering, and being really kind of involved in the community, being involved in the sector, um, trying to give back to people starting out in the sector. And also kind of really looking at um, being kind of a well-rounded, well-rounded individual. So that's, that's typically what I like to get given that type of meeting where I'm communicating to the HR person who's going to be doing the screening for me um, very clearly what the role is and also the type of um, ideal candidate, what, what an ideal candidate looks like. Um, and and it's kind of it's almost like you know brief like a creative brief when you're designing someone except you're briefing someone on the person the type of person you're looking for and that also has to be well done and well thought out or else you're, you're not going to get um, you're not going to get the screened in candidates that you're looking for. It's quite fun actually recruiting the amount of great people that you meet as well and don't be afraid I think to connect with connect with them afterwards as well you know because. You might not have the right role for them now, but potentially in the future, another role might come up that might suit that person. So I think, you know, don't be afraid to kind of openly network. Is, is, that's how I look at networking. Some people have a different attitude. They'll only network with people that they actually um, know really well or things like this. But I think it just depends on the individual and the organization and your policies, doesn't it, really? But it's, it's quite fun, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I connect with, uh, you know, anybody kind of pretty much who I've interviewed. I, I guess I, I would caution to connect with people who were later stages and then were not, um, did not kind of pass or did not, were not end, and did not end up being recruited. I guess it depends on the role. But kind of if I've had people where they were, they seemed really strong, but they, they would be good, potentially a good fit for another role, but not that specific role. But I can tell that they have potential and that they're, they're strong, then I would definitely connect. And if sometimes I would reach out proactively and connect with them yeah. because I know at some point I might need someone like that. And so I can then, uh, you know, check out my LinkedIn and search, um, you know, based on those skill sets. So you, you've kind of done that you've screened hopefully you've screened well at this point and you get to the interview stage and I know that people have really different styles and techniques for doing interviews in a variety of sectors and so I wanted to really pick questions that could be adjusted and could apply to any sector but that are really really tell a story about a person and you could really find out some key things and will give you kind of a better sense of whether they would be a good fit for your organization. So these two questions are, I always like to throw in a question on asking the person to give an example of a high pressure situation they were under, you know, kind of what contributed to that high pressure 
and what did they do to be able to complete their project or product or whatever they were working on successfully and uh, what are the steps that they took I always like this question because I like seeing what people think they consider to be a high pressure situation right mm. um, and and it's really really telling a lot of the times and that's it's really really good way to match people to the role because if the role is very high pressure um, and very demanding and the example the person uses you know, in your opinion, again, you're working in the organization, you know, the amount of pressure, um, if it doesn't match, then you are probably better off not hiring that person because they're going to be, um, they're going to be overwhelmed, right? Or they're going to, um, they're just not senior enough in their experience to be able to handle that level of pressure, right? right? So sometimes, Sometimes you just, the experience level's not there where you can just go, go, go. Um, you're still learning, right? So it, th there, there's a mismatch in terms of level of, of um, knowledge and seniority in terms of the role. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of people, you know, answer that question. And if they are very, very keen, they are very, very, how should I say, driven. I, and in not necessarily the most senior or the most experienced person, but I can see that I can see that they could do it and they could they can make it happen, right? So those kinds of questions where you're asking them to 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 come up with an example from their experience are really telling. So that's my first key question. Now I love that. I love that. I think it's a fantastic question. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 And then my second question is also very important and could be seen as a very crucial question because what you're really trying to avoid is bringing in people into your team or organization who are overly arrogant, who are overly, overly self-absorbed mm -hmm. uh, because they, those types of people can really destroy a culture. They can really um, have a negative impact, even if they're very strong and their skill sets are excellent and all their acumen and volunteering and awards and all of those things are there on paper you know there's got to be questions in your in your interview that try to weed out the ultra arrogant and the question I would recommend is rate your knowledge of sector trends and where the sector will be in five to ten years <laughs> so any, anyone anyone who says nine or ten <gasps> Don't believe them and run now. Don't <laughs> believe them and run. Because it's very telling. It's very yeah. telling. Like, even if they actually know at the nine level, you know, what I mean? it's, like, it's like, do they have a little bit of humbleness and will they go yeah. for eight? You know, that kind of thing. I think it's really, really key because, because, because that kind of tells you a lot about the person. Um, because especially in, in tech or in, in, in social media marketing communications and some of the fields that I've worked in, you don't really know that far out. Um, you could, you could maybe forecast and you could kind of predict some elements, but, um, I would consider a level 10 to be like Google, like how well Google knows. Right. Yeah. And because predictive algorithms and all of this, and they have Google deep mind and they have all these things and tools, maybe they know. Right. But no one does. Your average person, your average person, is not going to know at the, at the, you know, Watson. Would, yeah, level. exactly. <laughs> I would probably, if you asked me that question, I think I'd probably say five or six, because I don't, right. I don't think anyone actually knows. I mean, if you if you look at how many companies have actually disappeared in the last twenty years, 
just 150, 200 year old businesses that have disappeared overnight Absolutely. because of a new trend. Where, where is Kodak? Where is Kodak? Yeah, I was just thinking about Kodak. Exactly. And they're iconic. They're like iconic. Yeah, Kodak, uh, Blockbuster. But I was reading yeah. something about Blockbuster earlier. And in fact, the CEO actually launched, it, the CEO launched uh, a competitor to Netflix, right? But the board did not have buy-in. He didn't have buy-in with the board. And then the board fired him and they, and they killed the program and they would have lived. Oh, my God. Oh yeah. my God. Interesting, isn't it? That's because they're not pursuing relentless innovation now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're not. They're not. Exactly. So but, um, have you got any more questions or are we, do you want to get on to the next, uh, the next topic? Um, just one last thing, um, okay. it, about the whole hiring process is I like to include the test and reference phase. So in the test phase, I'd like to always include a test that assimilates, simulates as closely as possible, a really realistic part of the job. Right. So if you're to be a writer, I would give you a writing test. And if you ha typically have a day or two to come up with a 500 to 700 word article that go into an op-ed. Well, that's what I would do. I would actually give you a couple of days, right, to come back to me with the test because I want the this, this situation to simulate what the actual work will be like and how, what kind of timelines you're actually going to have, right? And um, that's, that's definitely key at the testing stage and it has helped me over the years. I mean, I've interviewed over 80 to 100 people in the last two years, so I've got a pretty good sample size and I know who I've hired and how well they've, they've done in the end. So I've got a pretty good, um, you know, sense of how to develop those tests, but always hone in on that one kind of uh, really, really crucial part of the job. If you're thinking about which part of the job to test, just think of the part of the part of the job that, you know, when, you, when someone comes in, you never really know, it's hard to tell that part. So then that's the part you want to test. And then finally, for the references stage, this is where I like to ask questions to understand the people's interpersonal skills and to understand them a little bit more deeply, to kind of ask, you know, give, us, give me some examples of when they've had to deal with a tough situation, give me some examples of when they've dealt with conflict, you know, give me some examples of when you know, there was a shortage in the team and lots of people were sick or, uh, you know, on vacation or whatever. Well, how did the person react and what did they do? Those kinds of situations to really kind of understand their work ethic, their interpersonal skills, their judgment and their reliability. So over to talent management, where, where, where do you start with talent management? From, from where I'm sitting, there are sort of different components to that i mean you want to you want to kind of motivate people don't you and you want to encourage them and you want them to learn but what what else do you think i'm kind of missing there well i always start with the talent management phase i kind of look at it from uh, holistically i look at my whole team um and i look at identify the team skills the team's strong points who's stronger and what um, and then I look at our organizational plan for next year and maybe even the three-year plan if we have a three-year plan and You look at what you need. So here's the talent. I have now. Here's the skill sets I have now You know here is how much I have of each of these and based on the work We're trying to accomplish in the coming year or even in the longer term. This is what I'm going to need 
So there's definitely a little bit of HR planning associated with that. And once I identify the missing skills, then I determine where kind of, um, you know, in terms of a strategy to bring those skills in or to develop those skills internally, right? Mm. There's certain ways, there's lots of ways to do that. So one way is to, you know, think about that skill, you know, and how much corporate knowledge the person needs, internal corporate knowledge to do that skill, to do that job really well. Um, so in that case, you might want to go for hiring a full-time employee that's going to be in-house and, and working with you closely versus a consultant or a contractor. If, if however, it's something that you don't think there will be a full-time role for and you don't think that um, it's something you can have as like a specialty within your shop, um, within your team, then it's probably better to co uh, contract that out, get either an agency or a consulting firm, etc. So I always like to use the example of like CGI animation, right? If you're in communication, if you're in communications and you want to develop, you know, regularly products and visuals, and occasionally you want to have beautiful CGI animation in them. I mean, you're not going to hire someone in-house for that. You're going to contract that out, right? You're not uh, going to have a full-time person doing that. So hire for the missing skills, but really determine if it's something you need full-time and it's something that needs corporate knowledge um, or something that can, can, with a good brief, with a good brief can be done by external providers. Yeah. And... Yeah. And I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Nat? I know you do some of that, a lot of that work. How do you find companies kind of that you've worked with? Have they done that assessment? Well, I think, I think uh, in, in the, I mean, in the marketing world, I mean, that's my predominant sort of industry that I'm in, marketing and sales, really. I would consider the two aligned very closely, really. I think salespeople like to think that they do all the work but actually without the marketing people behind them that it just wouldn't wouldn't really work um <laughs> but but i think it really depends on the brief i mean i i sort of work agency side so if if, if i don't get a brief that says right you need to contact this amount of people and we need to get this amount of people to say yes and then we need to get, you know, a conversation happening with this amount of people. I think the planning is, is the most important thing and actually working out what skills are actually missing from most certainly, like you say, from, from the actual business itself. I think there's a massive, massive sort of misnomer that you can hire every, everybody into your, into your business because that's totally wrong. I think there needs to be a healthy balance between the agency and also the business. I mean, obviously, depending on the size of the business, some small businesses or some even huge businesses can manage most of the uh, most of the marketing themselves. But even those businesses, I mean, you know, I do quite a bit of work with IBM with through a partner agency, and they work with loads of technology companies. And if and if 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 the technology companies could do it themselves, they would, but they actually can't because they're missing out on some of the specialist knowledge and keeping up with the up-to-date trends because it's our business to keep up with what's going on, you know. And whilst whilst everyone in the marketing world likes to think every nothing has changed, I do agree that very little has changed, but there are still new things that are happening that people need to keep their finger on the pulse. Uh, and and learn about because without without that the competitive advantage is lost 
And I think that's, that's really important. Yes, yes. And then if you decide that you're going to develop the skills, um, let's say it's, it's your core business, then there's lots of ways you can do that. You can do it through training, so formal training, webinars, uh, classroom training and all those kinds of things. Although I find lately there's there's been quite a few kind of high quality providers in terms of webinar and online training. Uh, but there's also like newsletters, podcasts, conferences. You could also ask your team to propose something new every month because you know that to do that, they'll need to be always kind of on their toes and learning yeah. all the time. So that's one good tip I always I always like to do with my teams. You know, ensure your your team feels valued and supported. Watch for signs of disengagement because you, then you might lose your top talent. Right? Top yeah. talent is always you got to keep it in mind in your head that top talent is always kind of getting kind of approached and potentially offered things. So you need to ensure that your team feels supported, that you're constantly kind of checking in with them and making sure that they are, they feel like they have the skills that they need or the time that they need to do the job right. And if not, if any of those two things are missing, then adjustments need to be made to the team, right? And that's all, it's all part of talent management. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly looking at their personality traits and looking at the skill sets they've got and then saying, well, you know, if this person actually is good at X, then I can see that they would be very good at Y and Z as well. And then perhaps, you know, finding them the time to certainly learn on their own, on their own time, uh, giving them some extra time to do that, but showing them a few tips that, I mean, for example, if they want to learn how to edit audio, just as an example, you could just show them what they need to do to, to launch something. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for actually on the job training. I think that actually sitting there in front of a webinar whilst you're looking on Facebook, um, a lot of the time is a waste of a waste of everyone's time really. And, but I, but I, th I also think that, that actually keeping your eyes peeled of what else is happening in other organizations within other sectors is also very, very worthwhile. And I think, you know, missing, missing out on that is, 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 is quite sad. I think that every job needs to have a room, some room, actually some space to learn. You need, you need, I think an hour a day at least to, to learn about what hell is going on in this world, because just look at it. It's fragmented. There are, no, I don't like the word disruption, but the word disruption is everywhere. It's in every industry. It's in every sector. It's in every job. And I think keeping up to speed with how technology is going to affect your job and actually planning with your, with your employees or your boss or your, your friends who are associates and thinking, that, you know, all right, right now, I'll just give an example. Right now, marketing is moving in the, in the world of chatbots. So if you know that your job is going to become less less manual and more about you know statistics and looking into the chatbot and saying well okay we had 5000 responses last month okay and out of these these questions that were not answered because the chatbot didn't have the information then you know that next month you're going to have to have that chatbot working properly with those with those things so if you don't have that skill 
and you're manually talking to people and you don't have a chatbot, just as an example, you need to learn how you're going to have to partner with AI. It's not going to take your job. There are loads of people that are scared about it. And I think that's a big misnomer. I was talking to uh, Winston Churchill's grandson uh, the other day, who's on another episode, and he's a he's a venture, uh, he's an angel investor. He he's runs a runs a firm in America. They've done over a, a thousand startups, sold businesses to to IBM and various other companies. But what made me laugh is he said something. He said, "Look, we're not going to be like the Jetsons any soon, anytime soon. Not certainly not within the te- next ten years. Are we going to be?" flying about in a spacecraft like the Jetsons, yeah? We, we, if, you know, and he thought it was very unlikely that we're going to end up like the Flintstones, yeah? But the most important thing is the ethics. It's the ethics of the organisation. And I think don't be afraid to speak up. If you don't think your organisation has the right ethics when it comes to AI, digital, digital disruption and what they're doing... Don't be afraid to, to, to speak to your line manager, speak to, you know, people within that organization and say, look, if we're not careful, we're not going to have jobs in the next five, 10 years or year, two years, because our jobs are changing so quickly and you're not upskilling us fast enough. And that is a big worry for a lot of people, but they don't need to worry. They just need to be a bit more like you and I and actually continually learning new skills. I mean, that's how we started our conversation, didn't we, earlier, which is what you said. And yeah. I'm, a, I'm a massive believer in that. I'm learning all the time. Every day, my brain is just, you know, continually exercising. And it's tiring. I'm not going to lie. At times, it is exhausting. But if you don't have a culture of growth, then why, why would anyone want to come and work there anyway? Absolutely. And my final point is, in fact, about the culture. So uh, basically, talent management shouldn't be a thing you check off the list. It should be part of the culture of your organization. And you could be kind of the deciding factor uh, for that. You could be the deciding factor for whether that top performing person on your team is going to kind of stay or leave too soon. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, Nat. Yeah, I agree. I agree, one hundred percent. And yeah, I can't. I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been. It's been. I know we've overrun a little bit, but it's been really educational for me, actually, and really interesting as as usual. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks so much. <laughs> That's great. And yeah, if people want to get hold of you, I will drop a link for your LinkedIn in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe and wherever you prefer, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed the show, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.